to another State of the Art podcast. Uh, this is David Stillman. My name is Arcadio Rodriguez. And we're excited to bring to you today um, a wonderful podcast with instructor and theorist um, Professor Michael Chikinda of the University of Utah. And uh, we had a really great conversation about theory, composition, um, Kendrick Lamar, and uh, many other little um, nice little tidbits about um, music instruction here at the University of Utah and in general. Yeah, it was really, um, I really found everything he was saying really interesting. So I think um, in this episode, I actually, listening back to it, felt myself being uh, less verbose than I tend to be on on most of these episodes. Just because I was, not that I don't pay attention to other people, Mm -hmm. but I, everything he was saying was having so many gears turning in my head and everything is like is what when you read like a book or you see a movie or something and some of you the ideas that you've you know you've had in your head for a while are reinforced and verbalized uh, I found myself in that set of mind talking to Dr. Chikinda um, often so it was a great conversation we talked a lot about um, obviously theoretical stuff um we talked about the environment uh, the current environment at the school of music um one thing that was really interesting one topic that we we touched on was the bridging the gap between performance and composition and theory and how all those things are intertwined and how they all feed off each other and um that that was really interesting for me as well um his research on Persichetti, I am I feel like how pe- you know how people a lot of people were really anticipating all these like Marvel superhero movies that's how I feel about his Persichetti paper as he was talking about it everybody's like super excited about Civil War I guess is a new one that came out so everybody was super stoked on that and I feel the same way about Dr. Chikinda's Persichetti paper so when that comes out um, I'm gonna get my tickets and some popcorn and and read through it, I guess, and treat it as a, a premiere for myself. Um, David is obviously amused. <laughs> so one thing I also wanted to mention about uh, the conversation was um, Dr. Jakinda did have his dog here, Tulip, who's an incredibly cute and wonderful pet. Um, so there's going to be a little... You, you'll hear kind of scuffling around a little bit. She 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 was very well behaved though. I was a little nervous about having a dog in here, but she she was just great, and she was also very interested in everything that we were saying. Yeah. Um, very interesting. And I think really that's all I, I I'd like to say before we go ahead and r- go right into the podcast. Do you have anything else to add? No, just that uh, Dr. Michael Chikinda is so full of wisdom, and. Um, this is, you know, the fourth podcast in our series, and it's incredible that we've had um, one established professional composer, two established professional composers, I'm sorry, and one classical performer, and now a musical theorist um, in our presence. And it was a very good episode, and, and I'm excited for our listeners to hear it. Great. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Dr. Michael Chikinda. concert attendance requirement so I have them go to like the composers concerts that they hold mm-hmm. uh, usually th- don't they have both an acoustic and an electric one every yeah yeah uh, 
And the salty, I also let them know about the salty cricket. Um, come here, sweetheart. You stay over here. Salty. Was it Salty Cricket Composer or something or other? Salty, mm -hmm. I think it's just Salty Cricket. Or it's, it might be Salty Cricket Composers Collective. Yeah, I think yeah. That's oh, okay. It, yeah. I'm not sure. But yeah. And so I try to get them to listen to a lot of, because I think that's so important to listen to music yeah. that is being, for sure. Yeah. And right now, as, as far as us, we're, we're trying to try to foster that a little bit more, just heavily on the composition area and trying to organize ourselves a little bit more and 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 start helping each other out more really is what we're we're trying to go for um but yeah no i mean really we just yeah i mean I'll, we'll probably just get started talking about you yourself and uh your introduction to music and education that, that sort of stuff so how how did you become interested in in music as far as like a, a like a more serious thing you'd like to to follow up on well, that started when I was taking my undergraduate degree, and um, I became, uh, in the third year of my undergraduate degree, they offered an emphasis in theory and composition, and so I, I took that, and that's when I realized that I just had a real passion for looking at how music was put together and, and why certain choices were made and others were not in music, which I always found very, very important because, of course, by considering some of these choices and looking at uh, how music is put together, it really informs performance practice. Mm -hmm. And I made the, the decision then, after I completed my undergraduate degree, to pursue both a master's and a PhD in music theory. Great, what did you do your undergraduate in? I did, completed my undergraduate at the University of Lethbridge, and my master's was at the University of Western Ontario, and my PhD was at, was at the University of Buffalo. Mm. Uh, part of the SUNY system. Okay, great. And then from from all, all those were with an emphasis on theory and yeah. Okay. At the graduate level, they were all in music theory. Okay. Yeah. Great. What about um, before college, high school? Did you do any music stuff there prior to? Oh yeah, I had a very active because all through junior high and senior high, I played the French horn. Hmm. So I love playing. I uh, love playing concert band. I still love concert band literature. I sang in a Bach choir. Um, so we would, you know, perform a, a cantata every year, and uh, I really, really learned a great deal of that because just by, you know, studying and, and looking through the score and studying it, I just learned, learned so much. And then, of course, in my academic studies I took at university, I was able to, to codify what I had learned when I started looking at things like counterpoint mm. and, and things, uh, things of this nature. And... Um, so I've, I've had, been very fortunate in having a lot of diverse musical experiences um, before, uh, before switching to become an, uh, uh, an academic emphasis. What, what took you to Canada for graduate stuff? Well, I'm from Canada originally. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So, so that, that's where I started, and then I ended up migrating to the U.S. to do I my see. PhD. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Great. So if you ask any of my students, I'm sure they'll... They'll eagerly point out all of the things I say that are that are uniquely Canadian. Yeah, I, I've heard a couple. I had you for a couple <laughs> lessons, and <laughs> your French is always very spot on as well. Yeah, I think I think pencil crayons was a big one that got the that got them really. Oh, know. pencil crayons, that's yeah. great. But I don't know if I caught that one. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think I did either. No. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> 
That's a good one. So, okay, so then you did undergrad, uh, master's, PhD. What what ended up bringing you all the way over to uh, University of Utah? Well, they had a job posting listed, and I applied for it. And I remember you always, whenever you apply for a position, it's always a good idea to, you know, do some research ahead of time and look at the school and, and see, you know, is it going to be an environment that you think will will both uh, your will allow you to share your talents and allow you to become a dynamic part of uh, the environment. And I was really impressed with the um, the number of un- performing ensembles they had. Like, you know, how many um, uh, how many schools have a harp ensemble, is that, mm-hmm. for instance? And you know, they have uh, a vibrant opera program, and you know. Uh, string quartets and concert band and symphonic band and uh, women's chorus, you know, uh, two, two choirs. And I was just really, really pleased with the vibrant um, number of ensembles they had. And then I looked at the, the actual curriculum, of course, and particularly the kind of courses that I would be teaching. And I was delighted to see that there was a very robust theory sequence that they offered a standalone form and analysis class, a standalone 20th century class. And, uh, and then for those students who wish, they could, there's an opportunity to study Baroque counterpoint and uh, theory special topics. So I thought, wow, that would make for a really, uh, you know, that'll be a really great environment to work mm-hmm. in and somewhere where I could, you know, share my, uh, my yeah. skill set. So how long have you been here for now? I started in 2010, so okay. yeah, so it'll be in my this year will mark my sixth year anniversary. Great. Yes. And right now you you you're the the head of the theory area. Is that proper title? Yes. Well, yeah. I, I I'm actually on a I I had a bit of a service uh, leave so that I could focus on research. I went on okay. a research uh, trip last fall, uh, but I'll be yeah I'll be assuming that mantle again next year. Okay. Yeah. What kind of what sort of research were you? Doing? Well, I was looking at the American composer Vincent Persichetti, and his family donated all of his materials to the New York Public Library, the music division, and that is located up uh, at uh, Lincoln Center. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's a great, of course, right beside Juilliard. So that was a really uh, wonderful uh, environment to be in for a week. You know, living in New York for a week and. Uh, taking the subway every day up to Lincoln Center to go pour over these materials in the mm-hmm. Vincent Persichetti collection. It was, it was really exciting. Great. That's awesome. Um, I have a quick question about theory and music. Um, we, Arkady and I, we just took a class um, in electronic music, and um, we're actually doing an analysis paper right now. We had to finish up and turn it in within the next week. And we were curious, like, as a, as a theorist, how, how do you go about analyzing electronic music? Well, that's, I think, when you're dealing with electronic music, you know, formally, you know, musique concrète, and then, and then uh, and evolving into what we now think of the full range of electronic music, it's really important to become steeped in the idiom in which the composer is working. So if you're fortunate enough to do a work by a living composer, like uh, say somebody, something by Dr. Chiwaki, you could interview him and say, you know, I've, I heard this going on, I heard going this going on, and I'm just curious. Um, you know, I, I think this is what you had in mind. Am I on the right track, or what did you have in mind? And he might say, oh yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. I might say, oh, absolutely not. I wasn't thinking that at all. As, 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 
as a matter of fact, I was thinking something else. Mm -hmm. And then when you do your analysis, that's really great material because you can say, okay, well, I had a chance to interview the composer and he felt that this was his inspiration. This is sort of the thought process, the internal logic as he understood it. But when I sat down and studied it, I actually thought that there's actually another process at play. So you can provide an alternative narrative and just allow the reader to think, okay, yeah, which, which one do I think more, more suits what I hear, my, my, my musical oral appreciation of the music when I listen mm. to it. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, but what, what would you do if, if the composer, unfortunately, was dead? Uh, well, that's, that's more often the case, right? Yeah. Sketches are a very imp important place to start. Sketch study, if you're dealing with probably maybe a more traditional um, form of music. If, if, if not, uh, if there's no sketches or, or notebooks to refer to, sometimes you can be fortunate enough to interview students. Like when I was in New York, I had a chance to discuss um, some ideas I had with some of uh, Vincent Persichetti's former students. That can be very illuminating or not, uh, sometimes they contradict each other. <laughs> so, uh, so family members, students, people who work closely with the composer, uh, notebooks, um, and, if, and if none of those things are available, then I think you just have to basically rely on your own instincts and think about the medium that he's using and uh, look at other pieces that sort of are similar in nature, that also, so if you've got something to, to compare with, you can start to see certain patterns emerging if, if, you know, rather than just dealing with something in isolation. Okay. So you kind of, yeah, I mean, you, you really have to take on a role of, of a, like a historian and a slash musicologist slash theorist to, mm -hmm. to kind of get the full, the full spectrum. And, and just right now while you were explaining that, it's that it just, and, and a lot of these pieces and, and, and these works um, at least, at least, just something that came to mind while you were explaining that was just how how important each individual composer is, and mm. and how that serves also to like, not I mean it it, it highlights individuality w w within each of them, but I think it also serves to make it even even tougher and, and sort of blur the lines even more as far as like how we how we might, you know, compare pieces to pieces from composer to composer and all that mm -hmm. and, and finding, um, I don't know, like norms or certain things or to, to hold on to when, when they're all so individual, like each piece is so individual to each composer. Yeah, well, I have a great example I can share with you with my recent research. It's funny, when you read a lot of the literature about the compositional style of Persichetti, the word that is used over and over again is eclectic, and that's kind of one of those umbrella terms that mm. when you sit down and think about it, doesn't really mean anything specifically. It's yeah. kind of an, a catch-all term. But going through his correspondence with people and, and students, he actually employed a technique called free serialism. And I was very delighted, uh, Dr. Hasse Borup, who, who uh, recently put out a CD of the violin music of Vincent Persichetti, um, was wonderful. He reached out to me and said, Michael, would you like to join me on this project? And maybe you could write the liner notes. And, and I said, I'd be delighted to. And so one of these pieces that hadn't been published and had been miscatalogued, a violin sonata that had been, I think, cataloged as a fantasy, if I remember correctly, on the back was written a 12-tone row. Mm. And I thought, well, that's interesting because I've read a lot of, uh, you know, literature on, on American 12-tone um, 
practice. You know, Joe Strauss's recent book is a good example of that. And Persichetti's not mentioned. But by going to the archives, and I saw him writing to George Rocheberg and talking about combinatorial hexachords and talking to uh, uh, an organist who was very partial to his work, talking about his serial procedure in this peaceful organ called Shema Bicoli. And what he, the, the process that he uses is called free serialism. So it's not the type of, of, of 12-tone that we would normally associate where uh, you know, you're getting a very concrete instantiations of the row. He's doing it in such a way that it, that it allows him to uh, use a harmonic palette outside the row, but while at the same time making reference to the row. And so I, I've discovered, and this is something that I'm you know, going to be writing about in the future, that he had his own unique 12-tone um, procedure. And without doing that research, that never would have come to the fore. You know, people would still continue to think of him as being eclectic. Yeah. And so that was, uh, the example was on, on a piece that uh, Hasaborup was doing. Yes, it was, it was handwritten on the back. He was looking at a handwritten manuscript. And, I see. And Persichetti himself had handwritten this row. Yeah. Great. No, yeah, I would be really interested to see what you have to say and write about that when, sure. whenever you get that. And also, Hasaborup CD would be great to, to check oh, out. Oh, yeah, so he's a phenomenal Because I think that the first time that I started uh, doing 12-tone stuff for, for composition, if I, if I had to describe it, it would be something like... I described it to myself as like a flexible take on 12-tone serialism. Mm-hmm. Oh, just 12-tone, not really serialism. So I'd, I'd be really interested to see... What, what he was doing as far as like going a little bit outside of the, yeah. the rules of that. Well, and, and, and I can't stress enough, and this is important, research informs teaching. And as I'm seeing the very vast different ways 12-tone has manifested itself, I realize now that the way I was taught 12-tone, I think the way many of us was taught 12-tone of this, you know, sort of these little soldiers, almost like, you know, when you watch those uh, news clips from North Korea and you see all those soldiers marching <laughs> by one after the other. And that's sort of how we're taught, right? Mm-hmm. All of the 12 chromatic pitches marching after another, one after another, yeah. indistinguishable, you know. Uh, this is sort of a very egalitarian, nondescript, you know, we don't want to privilege one over the other. And yet, when you look at, you know, Schoenberg's a classic example. He does use octave doubling. He, there are certain notes that are emphasized, whether agogically, registrally, uh, whatever the case may be. So how we're taught this is is imprecise and, and actually misleading in many cases. Mm-hmm. And I went to a, um, at the National SMT meeting a couple of years ago, and I was very fortunate to be part of a workshop with Andy Mead, who is a composer slash theorist, who said, you know, the last thing we should be teaching our students about 12-tone is how to devise the matrix. That's mm-hmm. the last thing. And... We just we, we said okay, if you were if if you were to give your students an atonal piece, you know what might you have them do? And of course, looking at important motives, whether it's a tetrachordal motive or a trichordal motive, yeah. and see how it manifests itself. Start with that way. Look at the motivic development. See how these things manifest themselves. Then, if you want to look at the meta level of the row and see, oh yeah, okay, you can see that these are very important, distinct tetrachords from the row at a meta level. That's fine. But you should begin initially by looking at the musical service and the music itself mm-hmm. and not starting right at that meta level. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I can attest to that because I think when it took me a while to find musicality within that music, and I think that has a little bit of something to do of 
when 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 we are introduced to this music initially, we we look at the Matrix, we look at, and it it just gives gives subconsciously, I think, the music a it puts it in a context that's that's very mathematical. I mm. think for me, it, that's that's what happened to me, and it took me mm-hmm. a little bit longer for me to to find melody and 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 mm. sort of that stuff within them, and I. I do do you find yourself teaching these courses a little bit different now? Because oh, because mm-hmm. I I don't know I don't know if I took twentieth century techniques with with you or maybe it might have been a different theory one, um, but but yeah, do you think you you teach it a little bit differently now? Oh, I I most certainly do, and that's to the students' benefit. The more that you do research, the more that you participate, like in these workshops, it it reconfigures your thinking. And it allows you to, to tinker with your teaching and to make adjustments so that you don't rely simply on what you know. And that's mm-hmm. a good starting place. It's sort of like, you know, students who say, you know, the first place they look when they're doing a paper is Wikipedia. That's fine. But as long as that's only a first step, if that's the only thing you do, then there's a problem, right? Yeah. And when we, we, those of us who go on to teach more often than not, we tend to fall back on what we know. And that's okay as a starting point, but we should always be a work in process. We should always be, just as when you're writing a paper, right, you're always revising, revising, revising before you, you, know, you finally come up with the final product that you're ready to submit for consideration of publication. Same thing with teaching. No difference. You should always be revising, 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 and mm-hmm. adding new things to your pedagogical bag of tricks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and you mentioned yeah. a workshop. I think you, David sent me the email that there's a... Uh, some sort of theory conference coming that word yes. uh, you're attempting to, to get to come to yeah. Salt Lake? Well, presently, I am the uh, president of the Rocky Mountain Society for Music Theory. And every year we meet jointly with the Rocky Mountain American Musicological Society and the Southwest chapter of the Society for Ethnomusicology. And we're very excited because next year we're going to bring that conference here to the University of Utah. So we're oh. going to have theorists in the building and musicologists and ethnomusicologists and the students because the students uh, do not need to register registration is free for students they will be go to any one of these sessions and hear papers so I'm encouraging students you know go hear an ethnomusicology paper see what our colleagues in ethnomusicology are doing go to a musicology paper go to a theory paper so they can just hear all of the exciting research that's going on the other thing that a lot of people don't realize is how the face of theory research has changed. At the most recent conference in Albuquerque a week ago, um, one of my colleagues did uh, did a paper on rap. Now, normally you wouldn't have rap and hip hop as part of the the canon, but that's that's all changing now. Mm. Um, the other thing that's happening is that it's becoming very broader in scope um, because the Eastern region, East Coast regional societies have become so competitive, we're getting a lot of people out of the region applying and coming here. And mm-hmm. this year we actually had seven international people um, apply to our conference. One is from as far away as Taiwan. So at this year's conference, we had we had scholars from Columbia, Indiana, the University of Chicago, Florida State, from all over the U.S., from UBC, the University of Manitoba in Canada. Um, so it'll be it won't just be from the local region. We're going to have scholars across from across North America, perhaps also from overseas. Wow, that's going to be really exciting. Actually, I wish I was going to be here. <laughs> 
Um, now, I'm, I'm curious, um, kind of branching slightly away from theory. Um, Why would you want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> um, just slightly. So um, <laughs> have, you, have you ever, like, as a, as a theorist, have you ever dabbled in, in your own composition? Mm-hmm. And in doing that, like, what, ha what have you found is, like, the difference between... I mean, obviously, there's a pretty clear difference, but like, on a more subtle level, subtle level, what is the difference between like composition and theory? Mm. I think the best analogy is when you're writing a paper, you can't, you shouldn't edit yourself while you're in the creative process. Like, oh, I shouldn't use that word, or I should put add this punctuation here. Don't stifle yourself that way. When you're writing a paper, whatever's coming to your mind, type it out or write it out, whatever process you're using, whether you use old-fashioned longhand or if you're typing, whatever the case may be. Get it out there. Editing comes afterwards. And I liken that to when I'm, I'm writing a piece of music or working on a piece of music, I just get it out there. I don't think in terms of some sort of theoretical analysis. Mm -hmm. that, if I want to do that afterwards... That's fine. If I did that during the process, it would be a no-go. Um, Glenn Gould was being interviewed by someone on the CB, from the CBC once, and, of course, somebody asked him, why do you make these odd noises when you play? You know? And Glenn Gould says, I'm not going to answer that question. And the interviewer said, well, why? And he said, well, do you know the famous story about the person that asked the centipede which first do you move? Which foot do you move first when you walk? And the centipede never walked again after that because he never thought about it. And so, um, I think there can be something stifling mm. about introducing that process too soon. So when you're writing, don't edit while you're writing. Once you're done writing, you know, even you know, even if what you think is coming out is crap, good. If it's crap, get it out. Maybe, maybe there's only ten or fifteen percent of what's on the page you're going to use, but get it out. If you if you stifle it, it won't get out there in the first place. And the same thing with comp composition. Write, get it out there, then I can think about analysis afterwards, which is comparable to editing. Hmm. That's actually a good point, because I, I found like, when I first started composing before college, you know, I never really thought about theory too much. And then I got to college, and then it's like theory, 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 theory. And then I, I felt like it kind of stifled my composition a little bit. Because I was like thinking, okay, it's parallel fists, parallel octaves, <laughs> yeah. all this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it wasn't until probably last year-ish, around last year, that I was like, you know what? I gotta just kind of get it out and then do the theoretical stuff. So I like that. That's actually really yeah, good. Yeah, there's point. definitely sort of like in sort of uphill once you get into academia and you start getting information, information. It's just like there's there's a certain period where you're just like. It's mostly processing everything, and you be, and then at a certain point, there's a tipping point where you, everything just kind of makes sense, and 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 now you can be creative around what all that information that you have. Yeah, I, I had that same experience. <laughs> it totally <laughs> happened to me as well. Uh, so uh, wait, back to the. I wanted to keep talking about the, the, the conference because ah, yes. that sounds uh, really great. Um, and because I mean, there's. There's the ASA conference that's coming here in May, which also sounds really fun. I'm, I'm going to try and be a volunteer for that one. And then before that, there was like the, the, the choir conference, which I performed in, but I didn't really get to look around. But 
conferences are like a thing that you find out about when, once you get to a big college, and they're really helpful and useful. There, there's a lot of stuff that goes on there. Um, but I wanted to ask you about the 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 one that you just went to one in Albuquerque. You mentioned mm -hmm. right. Um, I I gotta I gotta ask you what the, that rap and hip hop one was about because that sounds interesting to me. Oh. It was about Kendrick Lamar's King Kunta. I knew it. How did I? I knew it was going to go to Kendrick. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> and talking about what the usual, and it's interesting, it ended up being a kind of form where in a typical pop song, you have, you begin with the verse, then the chorus, verse, then chorus, and how it says chorus, then verse, chorus, then verse. And it was really mm -hmm. interesting when we were listening to it, uh, there was a point, and I, I asked him, I said, and of course, keep in mind, we are all... Um, we are all sort of culturally encoded to a certain degree. But in my mind, I was hearing a type of um, a rondo form, and mm -hmm. there was this one moment where it was, uh, it sounded very clear, because uh, it was just, just him, just, just rapping, and then before the ostinato came in. So it sounded like a retransition when the ostinato came back in, like a recapitulation. I said, oh, I was mm. curious, is that what's going on? And then other people raised their hands and said, well, actually, I, that same moment, but I heard it in a slightly different way. Mm. And, and so sort of issues of form, you know, this goes to show, transcend, you know, say, the, the canon of, yeah. of, of the, the Western, you know, uh, European canon. Um, so it was it was actually really in, really interesting. That's great because I've I've I know I've listened to a I mean I've listened to the song but I've 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 heard I listened to a, a little bit of a kind of a more I think superficial sort of not necessarily an, an analysis but a more in depth de description of that song. Mm. Um, but I hadn't caught onto the chorus chorus first that whole alternation of that but. That's great, because that, that album, I don't know if you guys have listened to that, the, the album that that song is on, because that, it's funny that it's on a conference now, because that, that's how, how good that album is. That, that's right. a good album. Yeah. And it just shows the evolving nature of, of, of the discipline, you know. Yeah, yeah, great. I mean, you, yeah, um, even, what was it, like a, a couple of weeks ago when the, the Pulitzer was given to, to Hen, uh, Henry Threadgill, I think, and was for a mostly improvised piece. I haven't heard it yet, but I've been meaning to. It's finals week. It's hard to get to it. But, um, yeah, there seems to be a sort of an, a, 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 a kind of a move towards more, I don't know, maybe progressive uh, forms or, or whatever. Well, I think it's – but you also – there's always – in the history of music theory, there's always a lag time from – <clears throat> when something, when you get start something being become part of a, a convention, come of the, the common parlance, and being able to talk about it in a meaningful way, and there's always that, you know. So, you know, you get some writers in the early part of the 19th century, but they're really commenting on literature from the late part of the 18th century and, mm -hmm. and some of their treatises. And so, you know, when you when you consider when rap and hip hop really first started becoming a, a presence in the musical world in, you know, the, the last, you know, uh, decades of the previous century. Uh, we're at a point now where we can really talk, start to talk about it in mm. a meaningful way. But there always seems to be that bit of a lag time. I understand what you're catch saying. catch up, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so we kind of let it do its yeah. own thing kind of for a couple right. decades before mm -hmm. we started yeah. commenting on it. That's right, I see. yeah. So no, we yeah, can start to sense. develop the vocabulary. Yeah, 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 yeah. definitely. Yeah, and, and you can start. I mean, you can look at something like 
Kendrick Lamar's music that's just chock full of references from mm. prior decades as well. So, you, yeah, you kind of need that to get there. That's great. Um, I wanted to ask you a question about how, how, how just something that you think um, could be something about the school of music that you wish were not necessarily done better or maybe done better or done more often or just something that you think could help the, the school be a better music school? Well, first off, I think we have a wonderful school. The students here are incredible. I love working with the students here, and the faculty here are phenomenal. If I had a suggestion, so there's always room for improvement. So, yes. But first I say, we're starting from a really good starting point. But there's always room for improvement. More integration between the performing area and the academic area. And for instance, um, I was teaching form and analysis this term and really encouraging the students, okay, it's fine for us to talk about this, but how are, is our discussion here in the classroom, how is that going to inform performance practice? What are you gonna do with this? You know, what is gonna be meaningful in this that would really assist you, you know, whether you're a pianist or you're, you're look, singing an aria as a vocalist or you're in a chamber ensemble and you're doing a chamber piece, whatever the case may be, how is what we're doing here gonna help inform what you're doing you know, in the recital hall? And that, I think, is where there's really good room for growth and improvement and, and more sort of um, uh, collaboration. I think that would be, that would be great. I see. Just go ahead. How, how would you suggest that would happen? Like, how would, how would a performer apply that? Well, when I w w it's interesting when um, Dr. Borup first asked me to join him on this, um, this Persichetti project, um, I ended, uh, he was working with um, Dr. Heather Connor, who was here at the time. Sadly, she's since left us, but she was still here at the time. And so I got to, got to know Dr. Connor, and then I was talking about how I was working on a, an analysis of uh, Schubert Impromptu, the second set of impromptus uh, that has a theme and variations in it. And um, I was going to give a paper, and I said, you know, it would be great if I had, if we could have like a live performance of this plus my commentary. And so we worked together to provide a lecture recital mm -hmm. where I was talking about the Schubert piece and Dr. Connor was playing the music. And, and so I could talk about important features. And then, you know, I remember in our discussions before that, oh yeah, I didn't think of it that way. That's interesting. I'm actually gonna bring out that, now that you mentioned that, yeah, that'd be a great way opportunity for me to bring out that line and that inner voice because I hadn't thought of it that way and or conversely asking about her intuitions about this piece mm -hmm. and, and oh you know what that's a really good point as a, as a performer I would do you know what that makes a lot of sense so I'm going to rethink about the way I'm talking about this passage right here because as a performer what you're what you're saying right now makes a lot of sense so you know analysis informing performance practice but it's a complete circle performance yeah. practice informing analysis yeah, yeah. It's, it's a circle yeah. yeah and i think especially for something like like piano music it i feel like there there's definitely room in there for schubert to have made some sort of musical decisions based on maybe something that was a little bit more idiomatic mm -hmm. um rather than following whatever set of theoretical guidelines he might have had or something like that that's that's great no that's that's a great example of how yeah. you do that. I answer your question. Sorry, I jumped in there. You can no, it's going. fine. You can keep going. And another thing that I do is what I call a treasure hunt, mm -hmm. where if we're talking about a concept in the theory classroom, I'll say, now, why don't you look for an example of this in the, the own literature that you're playing? 
and see where it occurs and in the context it occurs. And then if you do, and then I ask them to bring it in and, uh, you know, if it's possible to play it, you know, you know, if it's something for solo instrument and the piano accompaniment, we could probably do it in the classroom. It's for, if it's for the full, you know, orchestra, you know, I don't think we'd probably get the whole orchestra in the classroom, but uh, we could certainly, you know, do a, a reduction on the piano and, 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 and work with it that way. But the treasure hunt is another really great way of making real what we're doing in the classroom and, you know, uh, applying it to the literature that the students are working on. Okay. Um, what would you say would be a, 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 good w a good way a composer might apply? I mean, obviously, composers are always applying what they're learning in theory. But what is a good way, like, as an undergraduate composer at the School of Music, what's a good way they can do, or a good way they can apply um, all this stuff as well? Because we talked about performers, now what about mm -hmm. composers? Well, yeah, you've, you've hit on something here that's a really good question. Is theory meant to be prescriptive or is it descriptive? And a lot of the things that the sort of the principles that we're teaching the classroom are distilled um, principles we've gotten from studying the canon over you know, a long period of time. So a lot of the things that I would say that we're doing in the theory classroom are really intended to be descriptive so that there's a, you know, you have a really informed and rigorous way of engaging with the literature. Um, but whether or not something is meant to be pres prescriptive, uh, Hindemith's The Craft of Musical Composition comes to mind when he classified these chords and came up with his harmonic fluctuation graph. And I think that's a case where he meant it to be prescriptive, and I don't know how successful that really is. I would encourage all of my composition students to take everything with a grain of salt. If we discuss something that has meaning for you and you think will improve your writing, by all means, use it. But if, if we're talking about something and you think, no, that's not what I'm doing. I'm actually doing something a little bit different, and, and this would actually stifle or, or corrode the, uh, my, my composition and, 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 and the intent of my composition, then I'd say, sure, just you know, uh, put, it, put it on the back burner and, and come back to it uh, later on if you feel that it has meaning. It's like when I was working on my um, PhD dissertation, you, you, you turn in a chapter to your advisor and then you get it back with comments. And some are more brutal than others. Sometimes I curl up in the fetal position after reading the comments. But then I became empowered when I realized these are suggestions to me that I can choose to adopt or not to adopt as I see fit for my, now I would say 90% of them absolutely. But there was the odd one that said, no, I, I think actually that's not quite on the mark. What, you know, mm. uh, I think I'm going to, it, do I need to, need to make my argument a little bit clearer so that what I was trying to say comes across clearer? Or maybe, you know, we're all human. Maybe my advisor was, you know, having a bad day and didn't quite read it, you know, in the, in the context in which it was, it was written. So, yeah. So, awesome. Is that? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so just using... Theory, I mean, yeah, I mean, we, we I think the, the way I'd like to think about it is we have all these findings, knowledge, and all these tools that we get from the all the composers before us, and um, that, I think all those tools are really good if you have a very clear idea of something that you want to achieve via composition, and it's already sort of been done. So if there's something that you really want to 
be able to convey via whatever you're, you're writing and it's really close to something that somebody else has done, then, then you can go ahead and grab from that toolbox. So I think it's, it's good to just have all that knowledge, but yeah, to also acknowledge that, that, that sometimes, yeah, the theory does come after or, mm -hmm. you know, or most of the time, I don't, I'm, yeah. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, just still having as many tools as you can on your toolbox is that yeah. if, if you keep it in check, it, it won't hinder yeah. you. But, but that being said, obviously, if we were doing something, if it was a, an exercise for class and it was like a first species yeah. and mm -hmm. there's a whole string of dissonances and, well, I'm a composer. Right? This is, this is <laughs> why I'm, you know, that's not going to cut it. You know, that's just yeah. crap, right? That's a call. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there it's it's. I don't. I mean, you. I mean, you get to enforce a little creativity in there, but it's more of a, a study no. in, in yeah. certain things. Yeah. So I just want to be clear on that. I'm talking about when they're working on their own compositions. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you a little bit about the 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 theory uh, as a major um, and what that all consists of, because I, I know it's very very uh, similar to to a composition degree, except for maybe certain things, but. Um, so with, with a theory major, um, what what is the what does the final project for that usually look like? Oh, like for for a student who's doing say a PhD in music theory? Uh, let's, let's I'll probably keep it to undergrad. Undergraduate, so they're doing a yeah. So what they would do is right now as it stands, they there's two semesters required. The first semester they do their research, um, and so they would find somebody to work with who would be their advisor. And they would do the research, and then the second semester is the writing out of the actual paper. You know, so it might be, it could be an analysis base. They might look at a piece of music. You know, they might look at something. You know, I'm going to look at um, contour in a piece by Toru Takamitsu, or I'm going to look at timbre in a piece by uh, Ligeti, or whatever the case may be. It could also be um, historical nature. It could be the history of theory. I'm going to flesh out some idea of Rameau's. You know, I'm going to. I'm really interested in Rameau, and I rah rah Rameau, and I'm into the 18th century and the Age of Enlightenment. So I'm going to flesh out a concept by. A, uh, so it could be the history of theory, or it could be pedagogical in nature. Mm. You know what? I was never satisfied with the way sonata form was taught in my undergraduate experience. So I'm going to. I'm going to devise a more. Uh, a precise and more beneficial way to teach that to uh, in, in the undergraduate curriculum. So the project could really be, um, as I say, it could be an analytical, theoretical, or pedagogical in nature. Yeah. And it would be, be spread over two semesters of the uh, senior year, research the first semester and then the paper of the second semester. And then would you say for like a, a PhD student, would it be similar format just at a grander scale? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Th at, that, at that time, you're going to be doing putting together a proposal. It would have to be approved by your committee, and you're going to be writing chapters. You know, uh, mm -hmm. and you're going to be. It's going to be a very much more uh, rigorous process because, as I say, rather than writing one term length paper, something say 25 to 30 pages in length, you could be writing something that's more say. 250 to 350 pages where you've got multiple chapters. Yeah. You're pretty much writing a book at that point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, yeah. great. Well, um, we we do need to begin to end here. Um, I know you got to get going soon, um, but we did have one last kind of question we like to a ask all of our um, visitors on our podcast. Great. Um, what would be something um, that you would suggest that we we read or or listen to um, that we don't get to do in the school? 
Mm. I think, yeah, that's a great question. I think if you can read literature, if you can read philosophy, um, there's a, a book by Goethe talking about, uh, the poet Goethe talking about his, his travels to Italy. That's on my reading for, um, for, uh, for this summer. I think anything that gets you out of this space but, but it puts mm. you in touch with things, um, the, the composers themselves, the, the cultural milieu in which they worked, it puts you in touch with them. You know, for instance, when I was doing a lot of reading on theosophy, when I was doing my research, and, and Helena Blavatsky, when I was doing my research on Scriabin, you know, or, uh, you know, th these sorts of things are really, really important. And um, I think that's, so literature, philosophy, um, any of these things I think are really, really important. Yeah. Awesome. What about a piece of music that you think um, is just of the utmost importance and might be often overlooked? Oh, well, uh, Bach's Passacaglia and Fugue in C minor I think is just an incredible piece of music. But I think any score study you do over the summer um, uh, is, is well worthwhile. And while we're on the topic of Bach, everybody says, laments, isn't it too bad that he didn't write, you know, like CPR, Bach wrote his, you know, art of, uh, <clears throat> of improvisation. It, it, why didn't Bach write a, but he did. When you look at the art of fugue, that was his treatise, you know, yeah. and that's something else that's very worthwhile studying. Yeah, it really is. It's awesome. Okay, great. Well, Dr. Chikenda, thank you so much for sitting down with us, yeah. taking the time for us. Thank you to Tulip. Well, thank you for inviting both me and Tulip. Uh, yeah. So if anybody heard any jingling. Well, there you have it. Um, as you can see, Dr. Chikenda is so full of wisdom. And uh, just the fact that we're going to have this really great conference here at the University of Utah coming up pretty soon is, is just exciting. And, and um, kind of like Arkady was saying earlier, where some people are excited about superhero movies, I'm excited about this music conference. Great, yeah, um, yeah. No, I I really want to stress how incredibly helpful some of these conferences are. Just it's just a cornucopia of like-minded people um, speaking about the issues that they're their issues and ideas and subjects that they're really passionate about. So they're always very. Um, um, just very helpful for, for me whenever I get to go to one of those in, in many ways. Um, so yeah, me and David are really excited about that. Um, in this conversation we did, um, like we said, he mentioned the Kendrick Lamar thing in our next podcast, which will be with, um, uh, professor Chris Johnson, who's the current director of jazz studies at the university of Utah. We also, uh, hint on Kendrick Lamar and, and other sort of, uh, African-American music, um, uh, contemporary and, and, and older as well as, you know, it's, is due when you're talking to somebody about jazz and stuff. So that's going to be our next episode. We'll try and hopefully have that up, um, by, uh, next week. Uh, but for now, hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Chikinda and, um, tune in next week for our next conversation. Bye-bye.